Hey, this is Brent Jensen, and you are listening to No Sleep Till Sudbury, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. Welcome back to Rick Emmett's house. <laughs> this is part two of our 2020 Christmas episode series. I'm super thrilled to be here. We just had a great chat. Well, last week we had a great chat. Yeah, right? yeah. And we got a lot of the heavy stuff out of the way, so now it's just downhill skiing all the way for we us did. now. <laughs> Absolutely. That's right. That's right. We've got momentum, baby. So... This episode is going to start with song number five. Yes. And I believe that was one of mine. It's uh, To Sir With Love. And in keeping with the titles that you've assigned for these, it is How Do Songs Change Gears on Us, Professor yes. Rick? Yeah. We, we talked about the violation of expectation, and we talked about our own brain schemas, and we do have uh, our special guest, Daniel J. Levitin, who will join us from his book, You Know Your Brain, This Is Your Brain on Music. But uh, this particular song, To Sir With Love, we're going to talk about the changing of gears. So because when I would teach songwriting classes, I would talk about that's exactly sort of what you're doing. You're, you're trying to sort of up the ante a little, change a gear, you know, move the song to a, a, a higher level. And then you got to figure out, well, yeah, but how do you bring it back down again if you've got it up? You know, mm -hmm. you, so there's, there's a, lot of, uh, a lot of gear changing that goes on. So... Tell me, Mr. Jensen, why did you want to have To Serve With Love on your list? Why, well, what makes you pick this tune? It's all about the vocal. So those old classic tunes, they can be very rigid. They can be, you know, a little sterile, maybe. They're very spare, and they're almost neophytic sometimes, you know, given their age. They're very old songs. But yes. like, if you take the time to really listen and go into them and dig deep, there's some really beautiful stuff in there. And this song's no exception. So the kicker for me here is Lucal, uh, Lucal, Lulu's vocal. <laughs> Lucal. <laughs> I bet you didn't know she A Lulu listening. vocal would be called a Lucal. <laughs> that's what it is. I think that's what she called it. Her vocal is perfectly suited for this tune. The dynamics she uses right. spot on. She knows when to, you know, turn it on when she needs to in the song. It's just like her vibrato is like butterscotch like yeah. it's just so even and perfect over those strings it's so captivating for me it always has been yeah well you know uh, your your choice inspired me to also pick a, a movie song because there's ah. something different about movie songs than just regular pop songs mm -hmm. which i'm going to you know expand uh, and expound upon Interesting. but um I think your choice of this one it was so great because when i did my research into this tune i found out stuff i went you're kidding Oh, that's amazing. Oh, I didn't know that. that was totally so, like, did purpose. you know that this song is in the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame? Because a Canadian was a writer of this song? No. See? See? Hey, really? See what I'm telling you? Yeah. This song was written by uh, Don Black, <clears throat> who did the lyrics. Okay. And then a Canadian guy, Mark London. Yeah. And he was the husband of Lulu's manager. Ah. She was managed by Mary and somebody. I can't remember. Yeah. But he was... And when the song got presented... Lulu wanted somebody that kind of knew her okay. to try and write it so that, you know, you, you oh, my, her vocal is so butterscotch, you said, right? <laughs> but if you can handpick somebody that's saying, oh, it's for Lulu. Okay, so I'm writing this song for Lulu. There, there's no doubt in the writer's mind ah. where it's going to end up. So that allows you to say, well, then I'll customize what I'm doing for her range, her ability, like what she's good at, let's 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 work on that. Let's that let's make that sense. be part of it. So now, Don Black, did you know, 
he wrote lyrics for Bond movies, for James Bond that. songs. I did, did not you? know that. Yeah, I did not know that either. You know, he also wrote lyrics for Andrew Lloyd Webber. Oh. You know, so I did not know that either. So oh. I'm going, wow, this is pretty heavy duty stuff. Yeah. Like from the film company on out, from the production company on out, they've got Don Black and he's written these lyrics. Well, we got to get some music. Where are we going to get music from? So hmm. the lyrics came first. Okay. And that's going to happen later in the episode, too. Uh, so just a little foreshadowing. A little there. teaser. Yeah. Now, here's one. I bet you didn't know this. You talked about <laughs> the strings. When when yeah. you and I exchanged emails, you said, oh, her voice sits really good with the strings. And these strings, are, you mentioned the strings. Mm -hmm. I think the string parts, the arrangements, were written by John Paul Jones, bass player for Led Zeppelin. No. Yeah, I'm not kidding. Wow. Because... The producer of all of this, when it go, they're going into the studio, it was a guy named Mickey Most. Okay. And Mickey Most was this guy that, you know, he worked in studios that were sort of his favorites. He had session musicians uh, that he used that were kind of his favorites. He had a little cabal of people that he used. And in that cabal, Jimmy Page was the guitar player and uh. John Paul Jones was the bass player who wrote string arrangements for some of these things. Now, wow. the, the arranger that they hired, the production company wanted a guy named Mike Leander. Okay. But I think he subcontracted the string arrangements from John Paul Jones. No way. And the string arrangements on it are, are pretty fucking cool. Yeah. You know? So, yeah. shouldn't have sworn there, but um, <laughs> yeah. Anyways, in the end... John Paul Jones, I can't find uh, any writing credit on in, in, in the publishing, but there's a whole thing that happened here. The This song was a huge song, very successful song, yeah. but it never got nominated for a Grammy or a Bammy or a, an Oscar or <laughs> like none of that stuff. Hmm. And it's because Mickey Most did it and then he didn't care because he didn't have a credit. He wasn't getting any points. Ah. So it was like the guy that should have been sort of pursuing whether or not the song was going to get industry recognition, he, he gave it up. So it's climbing ah. the charts. He doesn't care. Lulu cares. You know, okay. Lulu's manager cares. You know, but so I, I refer to that as the politics of economics. You know, ah. it's like if, they, if nobody's got their skin in the game, then they kind of go, I don't care about the game. Ah. You know? So that's the background for the tune. Yeah, and so, by the way, Mark London, uh, uh, Songwriters Hall of Fame, Canadian Songwriter Hall of Fame, yeah. the, the tune's in there. I had no idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. So I didn't know that either. On my, you know, Google searches, I go, oh, I can't believe that. Okay, great. It's Canadian. We have CanCon. This is great. See, that's good. I host a radio show, and as you know, CanCon's a very important part of that. Yes. And sometimes when I'm not playing Triumph, I'm trying to find another Canadian. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Yes. I can, I can play this, and it counts as CanCon. It does. Yeah. You didn't even know that. You, you know. I did not. And now you I know, do. I once was doing an album at Sounds Interchange in, in Toronto in 1978, 79, mm -hmm. and Rod Stewart was making a record there. Mm. And the reason he was working there was because if he did it in a Canadian studio and he had a Canadian writer on the tune, it was CanCon. No so, it, you know, like, rhythm of my heart is yeah. beating like a drum. Like, he had established a relationship with John Capek and, um, oh boy, I'm trying to think of the guy that's the pals with uh, Ian Thomas, Mark Jordan. Oh, yeah. Now, so he had Canadian writers and a Canadian, and he's come up to Canada to use a Canadian studio. So now he was going to be CanCon. Wow. Rod Stewart was going to be CanCon. Anyways. Wow. All right, let's get into this tune, all right? Let's all right. talk about the changing of gears. Let all me right. grab my axe, man. Man. This is not going to be in my key. I'm, this is the key that uh, Lulu actually cut it in. Okay. But um, that's okay. 
So the song has got three sections. Okay. And these are fairly standard kinds of sections. A verse, a pre-chorus, and a chorus. Mm -hmm. So you got three chunks. But in this case, they make the changing of the gears really evident because each chunk is in its own key. Ah. So you get three modulations in this song, which is very, very cool. Hmm. And it gives, in my estimation, it gives each section its own sort of strength of character because they pretty much use, uh, you know, block chords uh, and a lot of major chords. So, and there's major triads in the melodies. It's very strong. All of the, this is all about character. Mm -hmm. So what's the song about? Character. What, what, what's the lyric about? You know, what's the context is like, it's a coming of age thing. Yeah. Uh, Sidney Poitier character gives the coming-of-age self-respect to these kids. So here's the, how the songwriter figured out how to switch to the higher gears. The, the song goes from a tonic to its dominant key to its dominant key. So wow. remember we talked about three chords in the last episode. We talked about three One, chords. Four, so you, yeah. Yeah, so you got your tonic, you've got your subdominant, which okay. is your four chord, okay. and you got your dominant, which is your five. Got it. And there's so much a part of what goes on you know, in, in most Western music. Mm -hmm. So what you're going to have here is the keys are going to go from tonic to dominant to the dominant of the dominant. Oh, interesting. Which is, yeah. So there's a real strength to this. So I'll just do this so, you know, we, we would encourage you to go to Spotify and yeah. <laughs> listen to this. But, you know, I'm well, going to cheat and I'm going to play it here for you just so you, you get it. Those schoolgirl days of telling tales and biting nails are gone. But in my mind, I know they will still live on and on. Here comes a big change, but how do you thank someone who has taken you from crayons to perfume? I'm going to stop. Isn't that really cool the way it's in this key then it goes to yes. na, 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 na. Yeah. and listen to this melody pretty good and it's making you think what's coming what's coming next exactly. you know yeah it isn't easy but I'll try it's in a different key now it's in a different key if you wanted the sky, I would ride across the sky in letters that would soar a thousand feet high to serve with love. The gears are, we're, we're out, you know, we, the clutch is out. We're going to go back to the first gear, <laughs> right? It's like, it's just so hip. So we're back to this, uh, but we need a, we're gonna need something just to prepare us to get from that. So it's yeah. hanging on this chord yeah. and. That's it, yeah. We just a little lick, yeah. just a little bit of preparation. This is a leading tone to bring us back to this. Oh, da da da. Da 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 da. Da 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 da. And then here comes a really good one. Key change again. 
Here comes the change to take it, preparing you. Ba-da. That's the dominant of the new key, yeah. which is the dominant of the dominant that we came from. <laughs> a lot of dominance going on here. If you wanted the sky, I would ride across the sky. Oh my God, what a melody, you know, in, in letters that would soar a thousand feet high. It's just so bold and strong, right? Big. Yeah. Great. Very filmic, very dramatic. Oh, yeah. So, you know, films, songs, they kind of get a license to be a little bit more dramatic. It's like Broadway, right? It's like you're allowed to be more dramatic than a pop song might be yeah. because this is a movie. So, you know, we're, we're, we're going for it. You know, it's very grand. That's a good point. You know, I never considered that, but you're absolutely right. Yeah. And then, we, you know, the whole idea of unraveling the song, you get to the end, you hang a chord you get a little tiny lick that brings you back to the other key. So there you go. There's the changing of gears. We can use chords to do it. We could use a little lick to do it. Mm -hmm. We can obviously, we've got groove. Like the song is going boom, whack, boom, whack, boom, whack. But it goes boom, ba, boom, ba, bishdom, ba. Yeah. And now it's come apart, you know. So you can use rhythm, melody, or harmony, which are essentially the three components of all music. Any one of those things can be the thing that sort of unlocks a gear or kicks you up a gear or yeah but you know songwriters would sometimes say to me uncle ricky how can i make my song you know get a little more energy in it how can i give it some more pizzazz i go well have you looked at it from a rhythmic point of view have you looked at it from the melodic Mm -hmm. point of view or the harmonic those are your three fundamental things to look at to say how can i create change create screw around with the schema yeah you know screw around with the expectations like that guy sat at the piano, this guy, Mark London, who, you know, and he's going, you know, I, I want it to be big and bold. Her voice is kind of big and brassy and bold. Right. So I got to have a melody that really stands up to that. Let me find some chords that, and he finds his way to creating verse, pre-chorus, chorus, yeah. and they're all in different keys. And you go, wow, you know, that's a little unusual. Songs don't normally <clears throat> do that. But it works, you know, it, again, to my point last episode. Sometimes you expect a song to go to D and it's almost a disappointment because you're like, yeah, it's just going to go to D and it does. But when this song goes to B, I don't expect it, but it feels good. Yeah. It, that, the B7 is, is functioning as a dominant chord for the E minor. It's actually going to the key of G, one sharp. That's uh, actually what's happening. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. The song starts in the key of C and then it uses the B7 to get you to G. Right. And then, which is the dominant. Yes. And then, if, if out of G, we how are we going to get out of G? We got to go. We go to the key of D. We're going to the dominant of the dominant. We're going to the five, and we're going to use the uh, what was the, the changing in? Uh, it was like um, uh, B seven for pre-chorus. Yeah, it, it went. It isn't easy, but I'll try. And it goes to the five chord of D, yes. which yeah. is an A seven. Da 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 da. Now we're in key of D. That's so you start with no sharps. Then you get into a key with one sharp. Then you get into a key with two sharps. This guy could have kept going. Yeah. The next key would have been... <laughs> yeah. Three sharps. Yeah. Okay. Anyways. Genius. I'm done with that tune. All right. I'm okay. finished. Let's your, move on. Your turn, Uncle Ricky. Okay. Is, uh, number six. Yeah. I, and I Love Her and by I Paul McCartney. Her. Well, and we had Paul McCartney last week. We did. So we're getting him again. And because he's somebody that I trust. And you and I both trust him because of his vulnerability. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And this, in fact, is an extremely vulnerable kind of a little tune. And I Love Her 
was from um, the Hard Day's Night. Yes. And uh, so they recorded this uh, in one day, Thursday, February the 27th, and it was released in July 1964. These guys didn't waste much time. And the thing that I love about And I Love Her, and also, by the way, I would also pick Pat Metheny to play this one for me. Okay. He has an album to me that's sublime. Yeah. He had one called One Gentle Night where he played, it was mostly on baritone guitar. And we're going to talk about that too later. And then he did, he did a follow-up where he did a bunch of cover songs. And uh, I really love that one. Yeah, he's got a version of And I Love Her on that one. That was from uh, 2011, I think he did that record. Anyways, shall we go to the Brain Book and we'll find out what's happening about sex? Indeed. Because sex has a lot to do with... Well, the, the title of the song here that you've got is... Uh, is our we, chapter. We also connect because of sex. Yes, it, yes. It, and it our brains are wired for that, right? <laughs> Who would have ever guessed that our brains are, are wired for sex? But And music takes advantage of that. And so we're going to go to... Page 251 of, the, of his book, this is what he has to say about, in, in my, I'm sort of saying sexy notes, chord changes, harmonies, like mm. the, the idea of what's sexy. Levitin asks the uh, philosophical question, might music play a role in sexual selection? And Darwin thought so. In The Descent of Man, he wrote, I conclude that musical notes and rhythm were first acquired by the male or female progenitors of mankind for the sake of charming the opposite sex. Hmm. Thus, musical tones became firmly associated with some of the strongest passions an animal is capable of feeling and are consequently used instinctively. So Levitin goes on to agree with Darwin on that basis in his brain research. But what he's talking about, and this opens up a whole new thing, and we hinted last week that we were going to start talking about this. It's not just the notes. It's not just the nuts and bolts of things. It's not just me breaking it out into theory and harmony and explaining it. It's not even the prosody of lyric and, and, and music working together. Sometimes it's just the sound of it. It's the oral thing that is kind of seducing you. You hear a record and you go, ah, this just sounds kind of like sex to me. This kind of sounds mm -hmm. sexy to me. Or, oh, this sounds very soothing to me. I, I, I'm really calmed by this. So those things are happening to you. And it's more the sound of the music than you know, the actual nuts and bolts of it. Yeah. So, and we've got some really good examples of that coming up this week. But for me, this one does this. And so now I'm going to try and just sort of walk you through it. There was also another little quote in the book that says this, it activates memory traces of emotional times in our lives. Mm. Your brain on music is all about connections. Mm. So we talk about music as soundtrack to our lives. And indeed, it becomes a kind of a historical thing. You can hear a song and it can take you right back Absolutely. to the high school dance or right back to the backseat of the, your father's car. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like, uh, it, it, we have connections. So uh, memories, thoughts, ideas. But a lot of times, sex is, is a really strong signaling thing that occurs in our brains. And so music and sex, they, they really do tie up close together. And there are uh, kind of little, um, how can I describe them, S sort of uh, the theory, harmony kinds of things. McCartney exploits the sixth and the ninth in terms of, uh, you know, scale notes and stuff. And uh, 
this song in particular, and I love her, it's a very pure, simple example of, of McCartney's melodic gift. Yes. Like when songwriters start to get fancy, they start using sixths and ninths and they use sevenths in interesting ways. Songwriters will use elevenths, hmm. you know. They, they start to use, they're, they're called extensions, okay. you know, alter, alterations and things. That's where musicians go when they're looking for sophistication. McCartney always had a gift for this. And this is a very simple tune that is exploiting kind of sophisticated sexual things. So uh, I'm just going to remind everybody how the tune goes. It kind of has like a, a... It's kind of a samba. Yeah, it's like a samba. And Harrison... The, going to point this out song is called and i love her and i love her and i love her oh interesting mm -hmm. this is a really common trick that musicians use you're going i need to come up with a lick and i would say to songwriters what's already in the song pick something that's already in the song and help it inform your choice of what else you might create right. so that there's connectivity so the song's called and i love her and he goes, and I love her. And he comes up with exactly the same amount of notes. And it's this, it's this signature. Wow. And McCartney has said later, I, I probably should have given him George a songwriting credit. So, oh. Because it was a McCartney, a Lennon McCartney song. Lennon didn't have anything to do with it. Lennon tried to, after the fact, claim some of it. But McCartney goes, Pfft. Oh, he really? Wrote, yeah, he didn't write any of it. I says, I wrote it. George contributed. Which is, that's a pretty good lick. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, anyway, so the tune, once we get in, it goes like, I give her all my love. So, he, that's, that's a nine. Uh, pretty sophisticated. There's a second. That's all I do. Very jazzy. Yeah. Now, you're not going to hear the jazziness of it when the, Lennon is just playing. He's just playing the chords. But if, you know, I play it. Like you can hear the jazziness of it. You can hear yeah, definitely. the sexiness. And this. That's a six. McCartney loved sixths. The Beatles used sixths a lot. She loves you, yeah, 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 yeah. The last, well, that would be a six. Ah. That, you know, that was a Beatles thing. Bob Dylan would go, what are those chords? <laughs> I don't know those chords they're playing. Those are weird chords. Okay, so. I give her all my love, that's all I do. And if you saw my love, you'd love her too. And I love her. So very simple, you know, very, very simple. But how are we going to make it so that it gets a little bit of a bump? Mm. He's going to do a modulation. Nice. So, and this is going to be a completely unprepared modulation. So we're in this key. And then we go... For the, for the guitar solo. Yeah. It's just completely unprepared, but it's like... Bump, big, you know, like a, just an emotional bump. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, it's really good. So then the song ends up. 
and it ends in that key, you know. So there you go. Now, I, I'll just, the reason I'd pick a Matheny thing, again, is because his playing is so lyrical and so tender. Even though it, 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 uh, Beatles one has a modulation, he doesn't use it because he, he's, he's playing on a baritone guitar. Okay. He uses a baritone guitar that's actually prepared in a different way. It's a baritone guitar that's using a, a Nashville tuning kind of trick. Oh. So baritone guitars, longer scale, you can hit much deeper. The bottom two strings are, are like bass guitar strings, really. But then he takes his fourth string and maybe third, okay. fourth and third, and he switches them out for an octave higher. Oh. So it's a trick that uh, they used to use in Nashville because it would make it sound almost like you had a 12-string guitar, but it wasn't. It was just a regular six-string guitar, but you'd double track it with a regular one, and then it kind of it, it gave you textures. And oh, that wow. So, but this idea of texture... Is it's a very important thing because we're gonna we're gonna get into that when we're talking about soundscapes. Yeah. Anyways, when you hear that modulation, boom, it gives you a brain cascade. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's yeah. you know, that's again, it goes in your ear, it hits all of these different regions of your brain. But then when you get that unexpected little thing, you're already in the schema of the tune. You're trusting the the singer, the the recording artist. Yeah. So you go, no, nah, I, I go with that. But wow, wasn't that cool? Oh, you know? I love that. Yeah. Yeah. So well, I think I've touched on everything that I wanted to talk about in that one. Was well, there anything you wanted to say? I wanted to ask you something about the very end of that. They end that with a D major chord, which is kind of a nice little wink at the end. It is. Not expected, right? Yes. Just that last... Yeah. Those things are called, that's called a tierce de Picardie, like a, a, a turn, and Picardie was a, a region in France, and back in the, you know, I don't know, Baroque era or something, okay. you know, the, it became a convention, and then everybody was doing it. In England, they were doing it. In Italy, they were doing it. So the song's rolling along, and it's in a, and it's, you know, you're expecting, you're hearing like, da 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 yeah, see, that's it. Yeah. So you're expecting it to resolve. You're expecting in... this chord. Right. But instead you get... Right. Yeah. But it still works. It's kind of... It, it just kind of... And well, I love that they leave you with that. Well, it's an ending. So it's leaving you with this... Like, like, the difference between minor and major, you know, the difference between a minor third and a major third is is positivity, is happiness, yeah. is sunshine. Yeah. You know, that's like a little ray of sunshine. At the end of all these minor chords, here comes this do-ding-ding-bling. And it's that's like... interesting. Oh, it's like a little ray of sunshine. And... It's possible that McCartney wrote it with that, yeah. but to me, it stinks of George Martin. George Martin was the kind of guy that had that kind of musical ability and musical education and stuff, and he might have said, I, I have a suggestion for the last chord. Would you, gentlemen, be? Uh, would you consider the possibility that we might play a D major instead of the D minor? And they go, ooh, yeah. <laughs> right, let's do that one, Gav. That's fantastic. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. I always just thought that somebody put that in almost as a like a little kind of wink, like a joke. Like, you know, John Lennon was kind of, you know, it, I know it's not his tune, but maybe he just finished with that and kind of looked around the studio and people said, oh, let's keep it. Could have been. Could have been. Except, mm. yeah, yeah. When Lennon would have been the guy that would have, yeah. because everybody else is playing, uh, you know, their notes. It's, it, they're not going to decide whether it's major or minor. But yeah. I... I think it was Martin. I've always wondered about I, yeah. that. But who knows? Because it's, it's, a, it's a classic, like a Baroque convention ah. you know a convention from baroque music yeah mm. Mm. okay let's get on to something crazy here all right this let's is get crazy. on to the craziest choice on the list courtesy brent jensen <laughs> <laughs> that is planet caravan yeah i saw this it. on the list i went i sent you an email i said what 
<laughs> are you sure this is like cozy up in front of the fire? <laughs> what are you, Black Sabbath? What are you talking about? But you see, that that's it. And the first time I heard this, absolutely was not expecting it either. Because it's just so kind of out of character, right? You're expecting yes. you know, bludgeoning power chords. But this song kind of goes off course you know, from everything else we've discussed here. But the thing that kind of strikes me is like the soundscape of it. Yeah. Right? So uh, in fact, it. I called the uh, chapter. What did I call the chapter? Oh, oh sorry. You called it. You, <laughs> sorry. You did call it Ozzy and the Lads Go Soundscaping. Yes. <laughs> so it's very interesting because that's exactly what it is. And it, it actually does what it purports to do is, is to take the listener on this kind of oral journey. Totally. And, and it, it's fascinated me ever since I've heard it for the first time because it does exactly that. It, it makes me feel like time has slowed down when I hear it. Like it literally affects everything in my in my field of vision. Yes. It's almost like being underwater in that way. Yeah. You know, for me, the real kicker is, is Ozzy's vocal because it's through that uh, Leslie speaker. Yes. And it gives the song this kind of ethereal, very detached totally. feel. And, you know, it's interesting because oftentimes... Artists will try to get your attention with music. They'll say, hey, 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 hey. But it's almost like they're doing the opposite. Like, we're going off this way. Totally. And then you look and you go, I, where are you going? I kind of want to do that too. You know what I mean? It's, it's, yes. it's the reverse of what a lot of music tries to do. Yeah. It's very solemn. It's very detached. And it makes you feel like you're inside yep. the song. Totally. And, of course, the, you know what the lyric sort of talks about is it's, it's, it's literally a song about aliens. Yeah. <laughs> Outer space, woo, you know, and they're on a journey. And what they do is they literally journey from planet to planet. They're like Bedouins, except they're outer space Bedouins. Yeah. And they just kind of go on a caravan exactly. from planet to planet. There's a great uh, video on YouTube of uh, Naomi talking about and explaining how it started. And in fact, you know, he, he's like sitting with his guitar and he says, you know, I heard these two chords and I'm playing, you know. That's all it is. Yeah. But see. And now we're going to start smoking some dope, Brent. No kidding. And we're going to start jamming. We're going to, and the bass player is going to go. And Ozzy's going to go. All I once went to the planets. And, uh, and. It's it's just kind of a little jam vamp. This is called a vamp. Like you get two chords like this. That's a vamp. Okay. And because it has these little altered notes in it. See, so this this note yeah. is in both chords. Oh wow. But this note, this note is kind of outside in this one, but it's kind of in there and it's mysterious, but now it resolves quite nicely into this one. So there's a lot of stuff that's... So when, when later when Iomi is like... Yeah. He's, he's modally kind of working around. You've, you've established a template where it's really easy to be able to just kind of float around and find kind of weird notes and yeah. you know you got this really cool little thing that's going on very ethereal a little bit mysterious because the minor chord gives you this kind of uh, mysterious uh, vibe to it yeah. but you nailed it when you said about ozzy singing through the leslie oh it just gives it this atmosphere which is kind of like a guy underwater or a guy in a spaceship like in a, in a 
you know, a capsule. Totally. You know, that's going through space where yeah. there's no sound in space. Did you know that? There's no sound. There's no, because, of course, there's no air. So there can't be any waves. So there's no sound in space. Anyhow, I'm going to go to the brain book again because where this whole thing about schema, the, this thing about soundscaping mm. and, and the, the seduction by sound as opposed to necessarily notes or harmony or melody or something. While you're doing that, yeah, um, it's interesting to point out, and this just occurred to me, there is no chorus in that song. Sounds. No, no, it's it's literally a kind of a floating. Yeah, just it's a, it's a journey. So uh, you, you remember we were talking about to serve with love and how it had these things and it takes you from chunk to chunk to change gear. This one's not about changing gears. This one's about just kind of li- it's like watching a lava lamp. Yeah. No, it's no. You're right. <laughs> Smoke it, a joint and watch a lava lamp. And I literally just kind of juxtaposed it against to serve with love because it's very structured, right? Yes. But yeah. it's it's the reverse. It's not structured at all. Like no. you said, it's a vamp from start to finish, yeah. except for that like extended solo piece at the end. But like, there's no chorus. There's no structure. It just you know? floats. And, he, and, it, and you know, once you're in it, you know it's going to be a long fade. <laughs> <laughs> and they're going to be wandering around and not sure. And they're just going to get lost. And they just pull the fader really slowly. Just take your time. Let's like, all t- take another hit off the spliff. Yeah, just sure. take your time. Okay, so let first of all, let's talk about the setting up of patterns in in the brain. So mm-hmm. schema is is how they f- refer to it. Okay, for, so here's a brain guy. The balance between simplicity and complexity mm-hmm. in music also informs our preferences. So this is a very. Um, I'm not reading from the book right now. I'm talking. <laughs> the, this is a very simple kind of a structure. Mm. There's there's nothing complex about this necessarily, in, in terms of what it actually is. Yeah. Scientific studies of like and dislike across a variety of aesthetic domains, painting, poetry, dance, music, have shown that an orderly relationship exists between complexity of an artist's work and how much we like it. Of course. Complexity is an entirely subjective concept. Mm -hmm. In order for the notion to make any sense, we have to allow for the idea that what seems impenetrably complex to Brent might fall right into the sweet spot of preference for Rick. So similarly, what one person finds insipid and hideously simple, another person might find difficult to understand Mm. based on differences in background, experience, understanding, and cognitive schemas. So we all have our things that, you know, made us become, you know, this is why we like music. This is the music we dig, you know. And then if something comes along, you go, well, that's that's too simple for me. You know, yeah. that doesn't really, it doesn't push my buttons. Yeah. But sometimes a song can be based on something pretty simple like this one, like, like uh, Planet Caravan. And it evolves enough in the sound of what it is in order to sort of bring you in and, and seduce you. So... Let's say you find a music piece too simple and you tend not to like it. So here's what the book says. You find it trivial. When it's too complex, we tend not to like it finding it unpredictable. We don't perceive it to be grounded in anything familiar. Music, or any art form for that matter, has to strike the right balance for us between simplicity and complexity in order for us to like it. Simplicity and complexity relate to familiarity. Uh. And familiarity is just another word for a schema. So there's patterns. I hope I can sort of articulate this right. There's patterns we know and recognize. Yes. There's patterns that we don't necessarily know and recognize because the musician, the recording itself, 
is revealing itself as it happens. Mm -hmm. Again, the, the metaphor of a sort of a lava lamp or something is slowly developing and you can go with it. And so you're on the journey with the, the artist, the musician, the recording, and you're going, I like it. You know, <laughs> not to sound too much like Jim Carrey, but so that's the first thing from the brain book. But there's another little thing that I want to add from page 156. And this was the thing to me that suggested I'm right on line now with your Ozzy and the lads. Yeah. Oh, soundscaping thing. Okay. If you think about songs, you know, and love, mm -hmm. this should hold some intuitive sense. Quite apart from the melody, the specific pitches and rhythms, some songs simply have an overall sound, mm. a sonic color. It's similar to that quality that makes the plains of Kansas and Nebraska look one way and the coastal forests of North Carolina and Oregon and Washington look like another thing. Mm. Before recognizing any details in a picture of these places, you apprehend the overall scene, the landscape, the way that things look together. The auditory landscape, the soundscape, also has a presentation that is unique in much of the music we hear. So sometimes you're seduced by the nuts and boltsy things, yeah. but sometimes you're just, it's the way it's all kind of flowing together and you're going, no, it's its more the sound of it that I dig. Oh, you know? yeah. I mean, I'm sure you could name other things where it's just the sound of the record that you like. So go ahead and name some. The sound. Yeah, like so. just a record that you go, oh, man. You put it on and you go, I, I dig where, where this, the sound of this record is putting me. Except also the wall. Yeah. Do you remember See, them in the 80s? Yeah. So the production of that record is such that the guitar feels like it's crushing you. Like it's just, <laughs> it's it's perfect in every single Spoken way. Spoken like a true heavy metal guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right on. But it's just fantastic. Yes. You know? Yeah, no, I get it. I, I totally. And of course, when I was a kid, Deep Purple would do that to me. The yeah. sound of the organ and the guitar together, it was just like, oh, it's just so heavy. Yeah. I just dig the heaviness of this. You know, like, like it was just so heavy. I would go, oh, yeah. But I'm an older man now, and I very rarely go for that now. Yeah, you know? oh, yeah. But. A jazz record that has a trombone player? See, I used to like higher pitched things and, and things that were angrier and That's things. Right. That, but now I'm getting old and I go, yeah, Diana Krall. That's a, a rite of passage. That's basically my first book is about that, in essence, right? Yeah. Looking as a kid for those stronger sensations. It's got to be faster, heavier, angrier, more colorful. But as you kind of develop a breadth of appreciation for a wider scope of things, you just you look back on that and think about how myopic it was. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, it was fine for that. At the time. Yeah. And it's fine for like, and everybody's entitled to their own thing. Like, you know, I was once in a, in a, a guitar magazine sort of, uh, not debate, but a back and forth with Kim Thale, the guy from Soundgarden. Yeah. And he had been very disparaging about. You know, the pop music that the little girls that go to the mall like. Mm. And I said, who died and made you the king? Like, who who, who gets to be, you know, the, the Nazis banned Mendelssohn. Yeah. As it was, oh, do you know where you're headed here, buddy? They're entitled to what they like. And yeah. they're hormonally driven to it. They like the sound of the way that guy is singing. When they're 40, they might not like it as much. When they're 64, sure, they won't like it as much. Yeah. They might even be embarrassed by it. But, yeah. you know, just because you like guitars that crush people, Kim <laughs> Thale, not, not Brent Jensen, 
Not Brent. Not me. But, you know, Kim Thale of Soundgarden. No, but you know what I mean. It's yeah, like, yeah. And I think part of it is that I always did have a an appreciation for the softer, gentler things, even as, as I liked heavy rock stuff, you mm-hmm. know. Um, so, anyways... Soundscape, yeah. Like for me, I would pick like a Steely Dan record immediately, oh. just because I'm a recording artist. Yeah, the, just the sound. Those records are. And here's this whole thing about soundscape. You know, we talked about landscape in the in the quote, but engineers and, and producers listen to records. They they think of about records as left and right, obviously stereo spectrum, but mm-hmm. they also think of things as in foreground and background. They tend to think of the depth of a record. Right. So the things that are going to go into reverb and go back, or the things that are going to sound ambient, mm. you know, and then the things that are right in your face. And Donald Fagan loves records that are right in your face. It's yeah. just so dry and so the ambience is used very subtly. Yeah. Whereas a guy like uh, Brian Wilson lying in bed listening to uh, what was it the Be My the, Baby Be My Baby yeah uh, was that not Phil Spector it was Wall, uh, of, sound. wall of Sound yeah uh, reverbs yeah. and he's going oh I need gigantic I can't how will I'm ever going to find the gigantic that Phil Spector found John Lennon loved Phil Spector you know oh, really like, yeah because they loved the sound of those records the yeah. the slap back echoes the the reverbs the you know i mean yeah. there's people that say the rise of sun records was because of the way they would get a slap back echo in that little room at that sun records where elvis would record and yeah because it, it had a natural slap back and everybody went that's so cool what oh we've never heard that on a record before oh and it was because the room was small and then things bounced around right and, you know, everything was leaking into everything else and, yeah yeah so you know interesting eh other um, records, I was just reminded as, as I listened to you say that, the police records. Yes. That hi-hat, so crisp all the time. That was Hugh Padgham who produced those records. Yes. And I don't know how he got that sound, but Copeland's drum kit, perfect. Yeah. Like perfect. And you don't hear, I used to bring that CD in, Rick, when I was buying new stereo equipment. When I wanted to buy a new pair of speakers, yes. I was looking for paradigms or whatever it was. Yep. I would bring in synchronicity. See, and so this is one of the things that can seduce people is the audio value. Not just the notes themselves, not just the performance of the artist, but in fact, the sound. And I think your Planet Caravan choice is kind of an obvious example and yeah. also a good one because... That's not what you'd expect from Black Sabbath. So you, right away, you're getting this violation of your expectation. That's it. But you're getting it from an audio point of view. Yeah. Uh, you know, very much. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it was a good choice. It Thank was, you. you know, not as good as the next one I am. <laughs> <laughs> but it's good. And that is. All right, folks. This is something I hadn't originally planned on doing. But after a lot of thought, I decided it would be necessary to develop three episodes from the Christmas sessions that Rick and I did this year, rather than just doing the two that we typically do. I left Rick's house with more than three and a half hours material for these Christmas episodes, and I considered a lot of options given a typical No Sleep Till Sudbury episode ideally runs between 20 and 30 minutes, and leaving good material on the cutting room floor just for the sake of maintaining a time limit was never one of these options. And I don't mind when episodes run long, if the content's good, and I know that you don't either. So after the first episode ran pretty long, and last night when I discovered what would have been the second episode ran an hour and 30 minutes post-edit, I decided I need to break the second show in half and develop a third episode. So this concludes part two of the 2020 No Sleep Till Sudbury Rick Emmett Christmas episodes with the third and final episode airing later this week. Not next Monday. I'll make sure that I get it up there earlier. Cheers, everybody. 
Happy holidays. Brent Jensen is the best-selling author of No Sleep Till Suppery, Leftover People, and All My Favorite People Are Broken. All titles available in stores and on Amazon Worldwide. <laughs>